This episode, I talked to Victor Adosi, who describes himself as a yak shaver, someone who likes trying a whole bunch of different technologies, seeing the different options. We talk about what he uses, the evolution of front-end development, and his various projects. Talking to just different people, it's always good to get where they're coming from, right? Like, because something that's going to work for Google at, at their yeah. scale is going to be different than, you know, what you're doing at, on one of your smaller yeah. projects. So, <laughs> yeah, the context, uh, of course, I, in direct uh, conflict with that statement, I, I definitely use Google technology despite not needing it at all. Right. <laughs> like, you know, 99% of people who are doing like, um, people co- like to call it indie hacking or, or building small products could probably get by with just like, um, Doku, like if you know Doku, Doku or like Caprover, um, are, are two like projects that'll be just like, oh, you can just push your code here. We'll build it up like a little mini Heroku pass thing and just go on one big server, right? Like 99% of the people could just use that. But of course I'm not doing that. So I'm a bit of a hypocrite <laughs> in, that, in that sense. I know what I should be doing, but I'm not doing that. Uh, I am running a Kubernetes cluster <laughs> with like five nodes for no reason. Uh, yeah, I, well, I guess, I don't know. People don't normally count the controllers, so. Doku and Caprover, I think those are where it's supposed to create a Heroku-like experience. I, I think it's based off of the, the Heroku build packs, right? At least Doku is. Yeah, yeah. Build packs has actually been spun out in sort of like a community thing, right? Like sort of like Pivotal and like Heroku have kind of like given it, uh, it's like buildpacks.io, right? They're, they're trying to build a wider standard around it so that more people can get involved. And build packs are actually obviously fantastic, right? As a technology and as a, a process piece. There's not much else like them. And, and you know, that's obvious from like Heroku's success and everything. I, I know Doku uses that. I don't know that Caprover does, but I haven't I haven't really run Cap- Caprover that much. They, they probably do. Like at, at this point, it doesn't, if you're going to support building from code, it seems silly to try and build your own build packs because that's what you will do, right? Eventually, so you might as well use uh, what's there. Anyway, this is like just getting to like my personal opinions at this point. But like, if you think containers are a bad idea in 2022, you're wrong. <laughs> you should you should stop. Like you should you should stop. Think about it. I mean, obviously, there's not. Um, I got a really great question at an interview once, which is where are containers a bad idea? That's probably one of the best like recent interview questions I've ever gotten because I was like, oh, yeah. I mean, like you can't, it can't be perfect everywhere, right? Nothing's perfect everywhere. So it's like, where is it? Uh, and of course the answer was networking, right? So if you need absolute performance, but like for just about everything else, containers are kind of it <laughs> at this point. Like time has borne it out, I think. Uh, and so, so yeah, I always just like biased to taking containers at this point. So. I'm probably more of a Caprover person than a uh, Doku person, even though I have not used, <laughs> I don't use Caprover. Well, like yeah. something that I, I've heard with containers and maybe it's changed recently, but, but something that was kind of a holdout was when people would host a database. Sometimes they would go mm. like, oh, we, we just don't want to put this in a container. And I, I wonder if like that matches with your thinking or if, if things have changed. I am not a database administrator, right? Like I read Postgres docs. And I read the, uh, the the Postgres documentation, and I think I know a bit about Postgres, but I don't commit, right? Like so, and I also like haven't like oh managed X terabytes on one server that you are making sure never goes down, kind of deal. But the stickiness for me, at least from when I've run, so I've done a lot of tests with like ZFS and Postgres, and like um and also like just trying to figure. And I run Postgres and uh, Kubernetes, of course, like on my cluster. 
And a lot of the stuff I found around is is like fiddly kernel things, like sort of base kernel settings that you need to have set, like, you know, stuff like, should you be using transparent huge pages? Like stuff like that. But once you have that settled, containers are just processes with namespacing and resource control, right? <laughs> like that's it. There are some other ins and outs, but for the most part, if you're fine running a process, so people ran processes, right? And they were just completely like unprotected. Then people made users for the processes and they limited the users and ran the processes, right? Then the next step is now you can run a process and then do the limiting, the namespaces and C groups dynamically. Like th there's, there's sort of not a humongous difference unless you're hitting something very specific. Uh, but yeah, databases have been a point of contention, but I think Kelsey Hightower had that tweet, yeah? that was like, um, don't run databases in Kubernetes. And I think he called it back. I don't know, but I, I know that was a, was one of those things that people were really unsure about at first, but then after people sort of like felt it out, they were like, oh, it's actually fine. Yeah. Yeah, I, I vaguely remember one of the concerns having to do with persistent storage. Like there were challenges with mm -hmm. Kubernetes and needing to keep that storage around. And I don't know if that's changed or, 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 or if that's still a concern. Uh, I'd say that definitely has changed. Uh, and it was it was a concern depending on where you were. Most of the people who are running AKS or EKS or you know all those other managed Kubernetes, they're just using EBS or like whatever storage the provider is like offering for storage. Most of those people don't actually have that much of a problem with storage in general. Now high performance storage is obviously different, right? So like so you're you're gonna have to start doing manual like local volume management and stuff like that. It was a problem because Obviously, CSI didn't exist for some period of time, and like there was, it was hard to know what to do for if you were just running a Kubernetes cluster. I think a lot of people were just using local. Uh, first of all, local didn't even exist for a bit. Um, they were just using HostPath, right? And just like, oh, it's on the disk somewhere. Where do we? We have to go get it, right? Or we have to like sort of manage that. So that was something most people weren't ready for, especially if you were just if you weren't like sort of a, a, a traditional sysadmin sys and used to doing that stuff. And then, of course, local volumes came out, but I think they still had to be um, pre-provisioned. So that's sysadmin stuff that most people, you know, maybe aren't, aren't necessarily ready for. Uh, and then most of the general solutions were slow. So, like, I used Longhorn for a long time. And Longhorn, Longhorn's great um, and, and super easy to set up, but it can be slower and you can have some, like, delays in mount time. It wasn't ideal for, for most people. So, yeah, I, overall, it's true. Databases, databases in Kubernetes were kind of fraught with peril for a while, but it wasn't for the reason that it wasn't for the fundamental reason that Kubernetes was just wrong, or like it wasn't the reason most people think of, which is just like, oh, you're gonna break your database. It's more like running a database is hard, and Kubernetes hasn't solved all the hard problems. Like, because that's what Kubernetes does. It basically solves a lot of problems in a very generic way, right? So it just hadn't solved all those problems yet. At this point, I think it's got decent answers on a lot of them. So I, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I do it. I'm not gonna make any. Don't don't take what I'm saying to uh, your your you know PM meeting or your stand-up meeting. Uh, anyone who's listening, but it's more like if you could solve the problems with databases in the sense it before, you could probably solve them on Kubernetes now with um, with a good understanding of Kubernetes. Because at the at the end of the day, it's all the same stuff. Just Kubernetes makes it a little easier to uh, do it dynamically. It sounds like you could do it before, but some of the 
I guess the tools or the ways of doing persistent storage were not quite there yet, or they were difficult to use. And so that was why people at the start said like, okay, maybe it's not a good idea, but now maybe there's some established practices for how you should run a database in Kubernetes. And I suppose the other aspect too, is that like you were saying, Kubernetes is its own thing. You got to learn Kubernetes and all its intricacies. And then running a database is also its own challenge. So if you yeah. stack the two of them together and and the path was not really clear, then maybe at the start it wasn't the best idea. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, if somebody was going to try it out now, was there like a specific resource you looked at or specific path to where like, okay, this is how I'm going to do it? Uh, yeah. Um. Uh, I guess I'll just say what I normally recommend to everybody, like just first, because it depends on which path you want to go down first, right? If you want to go down the, like running a database path first and figure that out, like, right, fill out that skill tree, like go read the Postgres docs. Well, first of all, use Postgres. That's the first tip there. But like read those document, doc, like documents. And obviously you don't have to understand everything. You won't understand everything. But knowing the big pieces and sort of letting your brain see the mention of like a whole bunch of things, like what is toast? What is, you know, like, can oh, you can do compression on columns. Like you can do some some things concurrently. Um, you know, what alter table looks like. You get all that stuff kind of in your head. Um, and then I personally really believe in sort of learning by building and just like iterating. You won't get it right the first time. It's just like, it's not going to happen. You're going to, you can, you can get better the first time, right? By being really prepared and like, and leave yourself lots of outs, but you kind of have to like get it out there. Do do your best to make sure that you can't fail uh, catastrophically, right? So this is like goes back to that decision to like use ZFS as the bottom. I'm just like, all right, well, I I'm not a file systems expert, but if I like I could delegate some of that, you know, some of that I, I can get some of that knowledge from someone else, um, and I can make it easier for me to not fail catastrophically. For for the database side actually read documentation on Postgres or the, whatever database you're going to use. Make sure you at least understand that, then start running it like locally or whatever. Again, Docker, use, use Docker locally. It's, it's, it's fine. And then, you know, sort of graduate to running sort of more, progressively more complicated versions. What I would say for the Kubernetes side is actually similar. The Kubernetes docs are really good. They're very large, but they're good. So you can actually go through and know all the like workload workload resources know like what a config map is what a secret is right like what etcd is doing in this whole situation you know what a kubit is versus an api server right like the the general stuff if you go through all that you should have like a whole bunch of ideas at least floating around in your head and then once you try and start setting up a server they, they will all start to pop up again right and they'll all start to like you like oh okay i need a CNI plugin because something needs to make the services available, right? Or something needs to power the ingress, right? Like if I want to be able to get traffic, I need an ingress object. Yeah, but what listens, what does that? What makes that ingress object do anything? Oh, it's an ingress controller. Nginx, you know, almost everyone's heard of Nginx. So you're like, okay, um, Nginx is, has an ingress controller. Actually, there's, there used to be two. I assume there's still two, but there's like one that's maintained by Kubernetes, one that's maintained by Nginx, the company or whatever. I use Traffic. It's fantastic. But yeah, so I think those things kind of fall out. And that is almost always my first way to explain it and to start building and tinkering iteratively. So like read the doc- documentation, get a good first grasp of it, and then start building yourself because you'll 
you'll get way more questions that way. Like you'll ask way more questions. You, you won't be able to make progress. Uh, and then of course you can, you know, hop into Slack. So I can start looking around and, and searching on the internet. Well, oh, one of the things that really helped me out early learning Kubernetes was Kelsey Hightower's um, Learn Kubernetes the Hard Way. I'm also a big believer in doing things the hard way, at least knowing what you're choosing to not know. Distributing file system deltas, right, or like changes to a file system over the network is not a new problem. Other people have solved it. There's a lot of complexity there. But if you at least know the sort of surface level of what the thing does and what it's supposed to do and how it's supposed to do it, you can make a decision on, oh, how deep am I going to go, right? To prevent yourself from like making a mistake or going too deep in the rabbit hole, if you have an idea of the sort of ecosystem and especially like, oh, here are like the basics of how I can use this thing. That's generally very good. And doing things the hard way is a great way to get a, a feel for that, right? Because if you take some chunk and like, you know, the first level of doing things the hard way uh, or, you know, Kelsey Hightower's guy is like, get a machine, right? Like, so like, if you somehow were like, oh, I want to run a Kubernetes cluster, but you know, I don't want to use necessarily EKS and you want to learn it the hard way, you have to go get a machine, right? If, you, if you're not familiar, if you run on Heroku the whole time and like you didn't manage your own machines, you got to go like figure out EC2, right? Or I personally use Hetzner. I, I love Hetzner. So you have to go figure out Hetzner, DigitalOcean, whatever, right? And then the next thing's like, you know, the, the guides change a lot and I haven't, I haven't looked at them in like in years, actually a, a while since I, since I sort of been, I guess, living it, but it's, it's like generate certificates, right? So if you've never dealt with SSL and like sort of like, or I should say TLS um, and generating certificates and how that whole dance works, right? Which is fascinating because it's like, oh, right. Nothing's secure in the internet, except that we distribute root certificates on computers that are deployed in, in every OS, right? Like that's a sort of fundamental understanding. You may not go deep enough to realize, but if you are fascinated by it, trying to do it manually would lead you down that path. You'd be like, oh, what, like, what is this thing? What is a CSR? Like, why, who is signing my request? Right. And it's like, why do we trust those people? Right. And it's like, you know, th that kind of thing comes out. And I feel like you can only get there from trying to do it, you know, answering the questions you can. Right. And, and again, it takes some judgment to know when you should not go down a rabbit hole uh, and then iterating. Of course, there are people who are excellent at explaining. You can find some resources that are shortcuts, but uh, I think particularly my bread and butter has been just to try and do it the hard way, avoid pitfalls or, or like rabbit holes when you can, but know that the rabbit hole is there and then keep going. And sometimes if something's just too hard, you're not going to get it the first time. Like maybe you'll have to wait like another three months, you'll try again and you'll know more sort of ambiently about everything else. You get a little further that time. That's how I feel about that anyway. That makes sense to me. I think sometimes when people take on a project, they try to learn too many things at the same time. I think mm. the example of Kubernetes and Postgres is a pretty mm. good example where if you're not familiar with how do I install Postgres on bare metal or a VM, trying mm. to make sense of that while you're trying to put it into Kubernetes is probably going to be pretty difficult. So, so splitting them up and learning them individually, that makes a lot of sense to me. And yeah. the whole deciding how deep you want to go, that's mm. interesting too, because I think that's very specific to the person, right? Because sometimes mm. yeah. you want to go a little deeper because otherwise 
you don't understand how the two things connect together. But other times yeah. it's just like with the example with certificates, some people, they may go like, I just put in let's encrypt. It gives me my cert. I don't care. Right. Um, yeah. And, yeah. And, then, and then some people, they want to know like, okay, like how does the whole certificate infrastructure work? And um, which I think is interesting, but depending on who you are, maybe you go like, ah, it doesn't really matter. Right. Yeah. And you know, shout out to Let's Encrypt. It's it's amazing, right? Because it's it's I think single handedly been responsible for the most you know the most of the deployment of HTTPS that happens these days, right? So many so many sort of like uh, internet providers and sort of service providers will use it, right? Under the covers, of like hey, we've got you free SSL through Let's Encrypt, right? Like kind of like under the under the covers, which is awesome, and they and they do it. So if you're listening to this, donate to them. I've done it, so now that now the pressure is on whoever's listening. But yeah, and I, I want to say I am that person as well, right? Like I use Cert Manager on my cluster, right? So I'm just like, I don't want to think about it. But I, you know, but I, I feel like I thought about it one time. I have a decent grasp. If something changes, then I guess I have to dive back in. I think it, you've heard the um, innovation tokens idea, right? I can't remember sites like um, do like do boring tech or something.com. Like it shows up on sort of hacker news from time to time, essentially. But it's like, you know, you have a certain amount of tokens and sort of uh, we'll call them tokens, but tolerance for complexity or tolerance for new new ideas or new ways of doing things, new processes. Uh, and you spend those as you build any project, right? You can be devastatingly effective by just sticking to the stack you know and not introducing anything new, even if it's bad, right? And there's nothing wrong with LAMP stack. I don't want to annoy anybody, but like if you're, if you're running LAMP or if you run on a host gator, right? Like if you run on some, you know, some, some service that's really old but really works for you isn't you know too terribly insecure or like has the features you need. Don't learn Kubernetes then, right? Especially if you want to go fast because you, you you're spending tokens, right? You're spending essentially brain power, right, on learning whatever other thing. So but yeah, like going back to that databases versus databases on Kubernetes thing, you should probably know one of those before you like if, if you're gonna do that do that thing. You either know Kubernetes and you like at least feel comfortable, you know, knowing Kubernetes is extremely difficult, obviously, but you feel comfortable and you feel like you can debug. It's a little bit of a tangent, but maybe that's even a better sort of watermark. If you know how to debug a thing, if, if it's gone wrong, maybe one or five or 10 or 20 times, and you've gotten out, not without documentation, of course, because, well, if you did, you're superhuman, but, um, but you've been able to sort of feel your way out, right? Like, oh, this has gone wrong. And you have enough of a model of the system in your head to be like, these are the three places that maybe have something wrong with them. Uh, and then like, oh, and then of course, it's just like, you know, a mad dash to kind of like find, find the thing that's wrong. You should have confidence about probably one of those things before you try and do both. When it's like, you know, complex things like databases and distributed systems management uh, and orchestration. That's, that's so true in, in terms of, you are comfortable enough being able to debug a problem because it's, I think mm. when you are learning about something, a lot of times you start with some kind of guide or some kind of tutorial and you follow the steps and if it all works, then great. Right. But yeah, I think it's such a large leap from that to something went wrong and I have to figure it out. Right. Whether it's, something's not right in 
my Docker file or yeah. my Postgres instance is uh, the queries are timing out. Like there's so mm. many different things that could go wrong that that is the moment where you're forced to figure out, okay, what do I really know about yeah, running this thing? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like the, the rubber's hitting the road and it's a, you know, the car's about to crash or has already crashed. Like, <laughs> like if I open the bonnet, do I know what's happening? Right. Or am I just looking at, you know, copy good. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. It's um, and that's, it's, I feel sort of a little sorry or sad for, for devs that start today because there's so much complexity that's been built up and a lot of it has a point, but you need to kind of have seen the before to understand the point. Right. So I like, I like to use front end as, as an example, right? Like the front end ecosystem is crazy and it has, been crazy for a very long time but the steps are actually usually logical right like so like you start with you know html css and javascript just plain right and like and you can actually go in lots of directions like html has its own thing css has its own sort of evolution sort of thing but if we look at javascript you're like you're just writing javascript on every page right and like just like putting in script tags and putting in whatever and then it's you get spaghetti you get spaghetti you start like writing copying the same function on multiple pages you, you know, right you just it's not good. So then people, people make jQuery, right? And now, now you've got like a, a bundled set of like good, good defaults that you can, you can go for. Right. And then like, you know, libraries like underscore come out to, for like, sort of like not Dom related stuff that you do want, you do want everywhere. And then people go from there and they go to like backbone or whatever. It's because jQuery sort of also becomes spaghetti at, at some point and it becomes hard to manage. And people are like, okay, we need to sort of like encapsulate this stuff somehow, right? And like the like move tools or whatever is around at the same time frame. And you use you, you like backbone views, for example, and you have people who are kind of like, ah, but that's not really good. It's getting kind of slow. Uh, and then you have NVC stuff comes out, right? Like Angular comes out, and it's like, okay, we're we're gonna do this thing called dirty checking. And it's gonna be it's gonna be faster and it's gonna be like it's gonna be less sort of spaghetti and it's like a little bit more structured and now you have sort of like the rails paradigm but on the front end and it takes people to get a while to get adjusted to that but then that gets too heavy right and then dirty checking is realized to be a mistake and then you get stuff like mvvm right so you get knockout like knockout js and you've got like durandal and like some some other like sort of front end technologies that come up to address that problem uh, and then after that, like, you know, it just keeps going, right? Like, and if you come in at the very end, you're just like, what is happening, <laughs> right? Like if it, if it, if someone doesn't sort of boil down the complexity and reduce it a little bit, you're just like, why, why do we do this like this, right? And sometimes there's no good reason. Sometimes the complexity is just like, is unnecessary, but having the steps helps you explain it uh, or helps you understand how you got there. And, and so I feel like that is something younger people or, or newer devs don't necessarily get a chance to see because it just it would take to it would take very long right and if you're like a new dev let's say you jumped into like a coding boot camp i mean i've got opinions on coding boot camps but you know it's just like let's say you jumped into one and you you came out you, you made it it's just there's too much to know sure you could probably do like html in one month well okay let's say like two weeks or whatever right if you were if you're literally brand new two weeks of like concerted effort almost you know class level you know, work days, right? On, on HTML, you're probably decently comfortable with it. Very comfortable. CSS, 
a little harder because th this is where things get hard. Because if you if you give two weeks for for HTML, CSS is harder than HTML kind of, right? Because the interactions are way more varied, right? Like it, it, and maybe it's one of those things where you just like you you get somewhat comfortable and then just like know that in the future you're gonna see something you don't understand and have to figure it out. Uh, but then JavaScript, like how many months do you give JavaScript? Because if you go through that first like sort of progression that I I I, I mentioned everyone would have a perfect sort of, un, not perfect, but good understanding of the pieces, right? Like, why did we start transpiling at all, right? Like, uh, or why did, you know, why did we adopt libraries? Like, why did Bower exist? No one talks about Bower anymore, obviously, but like Bower was like a way to distribute front-end only packages, right? Um, what is it? Um, Thinking of Grunt? Uh, Yes, there's grunt. There's like the whole build system thing, right? Once once we decide we're gonna we're gonna do stuff to files before we before we push. So there's grunt. There's uh, gulp, which is like grunt, but like oh, we're gonna do it all in memory. We're gonna pipe. We're gonna use this pipes thing to make sure everything goes fast. And then there's like <laughs> of course that leads to like the insanity that's webpack. And then there's like parcel, which did better. There's v. There's like there's all this. There's this progression. But how many months would it take to know that progression? It, it's too long. So they end up just like, hey, you're going to learn React, which is the right thing because it's like, that's what people hire for, right? But then you're going to be in React and be like, what's Webpack, <laughs> right? And it's like, but you can't go down, you can't, you don't have the time, you, you can't sort of approach that problem from the other direction, where you, which would give you better understanding because you just don't have the time. I, I think it's hard for newer devs to overcome this, um, but I think there are some, there's some hope on the horizon because some things are simpler. Right, like some projects do reduce complexity, like by watching another project sort of innovate. So, like React wasn't the first component-first framework, right? Like technically, I think I think you you might have to give that to like to maybe Backbone because like they had views and like Marionette also went with that. Like maybe I don't know someone someone I'm sure will get in get, like send me an angry email because uh, I forgot the you know, mood tools or like you know Ember Ember they've also they've also been around. I Used to be a huge Ember fan, still still kind of am, but I don't use it. But if you have these, if you have these tools, right? Like people aren't going to know how to use them. And Vue was able to realize that React had some inefficiencies, right? So React innovates the sort of component, so reintroduces the component-based model, component-first uh, front-end development model. Vue sees that and is like, wait a second. If we just export this like data object, and of course that's not the only innovation of you, but if we just export this data object, you don't have to do this fine-grained tracking yourself anymore, right? You don't have to tell React or tell your the system which things change when other things change, right? Like you you, you don't have to set up this watching and stuff, right? Um, and that's one of the reasons like Vue is just I, I, I remember picking up Vue and being like, oh, I'm done with I'm done with React now. Because it just doesn't make sense to use React because they View essentially either, you know, you could just say they learned from them or they they realize a better way to do things that is simpler and is much easier to write. Uh, and you know, functionally similar, right? Um, similar enough that it's just like, oh, view, they boil down some of that complexity and we're a step forward in, you know, uh, in, in other ways, I think. Uh, so that's that's awesome. Every once in a while you get like a compression in the complexity. And then it starts to ramp up again and you get maybe another compression. So like joining the projects that do a compression uh, or like starting to adopting nodes is really, can be really awesome. So there's, there's like, there's some hope, right? Cause sometimes there is a compression in that complexity 
and you, you, you might be lucky enough to, to use that instead of the thing that's really complex after years of building on it. I think you're talking about newer developers having a tough time making sense of the current frameworks, but the yeah. example you gave of somebody starting from HTML and JavaScript going to jQuery, Backbone, yeah. through the whole chain, yeah. that that's just yeah. by nature of you've put in a lot of time, right? You have... You've done a lot of work working with each of these technologies yeah. and you see the progression. Whereas if someone's starting new, just by nature of you being new, you won't have been able yeah. to spend that time. Do you think it could work? Again, the, the, the time aspect is like, it's, it's really hard to get. Like, how can you just avoid spending time um, to, to learn things? That's like a, a general problem. I think that problem is called education in the general sense. But like, does it make sense for a let's say a bootcamp or, or, or any, you know, school, right. To attempt to guide people through the previous solutions that didn't work. Right. Like in math, you don't start with calculus, right. It just wouldn't, it doesn't make sense. Right. But we try and start with calculus in software, right. We're just like, okay, here's the complexity. You've got all of it. Don't worry. Just look at this little bit. If, you know, if the compiler ever spits out a weird error, uh oh, like you're 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 in for trouble because you you just didn't get the get the basics. And I think that's maybe some of what is missing. And the thing is, it's like the constraints are hard, right? No one has infinite time, right? Or like, you know, even like just tons of time to devote to learning, learning just front end, right? That's not even all of computing. That's not even the algorithm stuff that some companies love to throw at you, right? Uh or the computer science stuff. I wonder if it makes more sense to spend some time taking people through the progression, right? Because discovering that we should do things via components, let's say, or, or at least encapsulate our functionality to components and compose that way is something we, we not everyone knew, right? We, or, you know, we didn't know wild, widely. And so it feels like it might make sense to touch on that sort of realization and sort of guide the student through, you know, and maybe it's like make five projects in a week and you just get progressively more complex. But then again, that's also hard it's effort, right? It's just like, it's a hard problem. But, but I, I think right now, uh, people who come in at the end and sort of like see a bunch of complexity and just don't know why it's there, right? Like if you've like, sort of like, this is, this applies also very, it, this applies in general, but it applies very well to the Kubernetes problem as well. Like if you've never managed Nginx on more than one machine, or if you've never tried to set up a like a to format your file system on the machine you just rented because it just you know comes with nothing, right? Or like maybe maybe some stuff was installed, but you know, or if you had to like install LVM yourself, if you've never done any of that, Kubernetes will be harder to understand. It's just like it's gonna be hard to understand. Overlay networks are hard for everyone to understand, uh, except for network people who like really know networking stuff. I think it would be better, but unfortunately, it takes a lot of time for people to take a sort of more iterative approach to, to learning. I try and write blog posts in this way sometimes, but it's really hard. And so like, I'll often have like an idea, like, so I call these, or, or I think of these as like onion, onion style posts, right? Where you either build up an onion sort of from the inside and kind of like go out and like add more and more layers or whatever, or you can, you can go from the outside and sort of take off like layers, like, oh, uh, Kubernetes has a scheduler. Why do they need a scheduler? Like, in, like you know, kind of like go go down. But I think that might be one of the best ways to learn. But it just takes time. Or geniuses, 
and geniuses who are good at two things, right? Good at the actual technology and good at teaching because teaching is a skill and it's very hard. And, you know, shout out to teachers because that's, it's, it's very difficult, extremely frustrating. It's hard to find determinism in, in like methods and solutions. And there's research, of course, but it's like, yeah, that's, that's a lot harder than the computer being like, nope, that doesn't work. Right. Like if you can't, if you can't, like if you, if the function call doesn't work, it doesn't work. Right. If the person learned suboptimally, you won't know. Right. Until like 10 years down the road when, when they can't answer some question or like, you know, when they, they don't understand some missing fundamental piece. Anyway. Yeah. yeah I think with the example of front end, maybe you don't have time to walk through the whole history of every single mm -hmm. library and framework that came through. But mm -hmm. I think at the very least, if you show someone or you teach someone how to work with HTML, how to work with CSS, and you have them, like you were talking about components before, you have them build mm -hmm. a site where there's a lot of stuff that gets reused, right? Maybe you yeah. have five pages and they all have the same nav bar um, ah, as yeah. an example. You kind of like make them do it. Yeah. Yeah. You make them do it and they yeah. make all the HTML files, they copy and paste it. And yeah. probably your students are thinking like, ah, oh, this, this kind of sucks. And yeah. So then you, you come to that realization and then after you've done that, then you can bring in, okay, this is why we have components. And similarly, you brought up manual DOM manipulation with jQuery and things like that. Yeah. I, I'm yeah. sure you could come up with an example of, you don't even necessarily need to use jQuery. I think people can probably skip that step and just use the, <laughs> um, the, the yeah. API that comes with the browser, but you can have them go in like, oh, you got to find this element by the ID and then you got to change this based on this and, and let them experience the, I don't know if I would call it pain, but let them experience like how it was, right? And mm, and yeah. give them a complex enough task where they feel like something is wrong, right? Or or like there yeah. there should be something better. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And and yeah. and then you can go to you could go straight to view or React. I'm not sure if we need to go like here's backbone, here's knockout. Yeah, it's, not. it's like, <laughs> that's a bit of like historical. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I, I think that would be an interesting college course or something like that. Like yeah. I remember when I went through school, one of the classes was programming languages. So we would learn things like Fortran and stuff like that. And oh. I, I think for a more front end centered or modern equivalent. Yeah. yeah. You, you could go through, yeah. Hey, here's the history of front end development and yeah. this is what we used to do. And here's how we got to where we are today. I think that could be a, an, actually a pretty interesting class. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm a bit interested to learn that you learned Fortran in, uh, in your PL class. Right. Like, yeah. I, I think when I went, I was like Lisp and then some, some, some other like higher classes taught Haskell. But um, mm. but I wasn't ready for Haskell, obviously, because you know not many people are. But Fortran is interesting. I I, I kind of want to hear about that. I think it was more in terms of just getting you exposed to historically, this is how things were, right? And it wasn't so mm. much of like 
you can take strategies you used in Fortran mm. into programming as a whole. I think it was just yeah. more of like a, a survey of like, hey, here's, you know, here's Fortran. And like you were saying, here's Lisp mm. and all, all these mm. different mm. languages. And like, at least you you get to see them and you go like, yeah, this is kind of a pain. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. I understand why yeah. people don't choose to right. use this anymore. Um, yeah. But... I couldn't take away like a broad like oh I I really wish we had this feature from yeah. I think we were I think we were using Fortran seventy seven or something like that like I think <laughs> I think there's like yeah. a Fortran seventy seven yeah. a Fortran ninety yeah. and then there's oh my um, god I think oh, I like think old Fortran <laughs> yeah yeah Fortran. <laughs> yeah yeah so so I think I think uh, I actually don't know if they're they're continuing to um, you know add new things or maintain it or if it's just yeah. static but. It's, it's more uh, interesting in terms of like we were talking about front end where it's mm. as somebody who's learning front end development to who's new and you get to see mm. how backbone worked or how knockout worked yeah. or how grunt and gulp worked. It, it's like the yeah. kind of thing where it's like, oh, okay, like yeah. this is interesting, yeah. but huh. let us not use this again. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, and I also like, don't need this and I will not yeah. need this ever again. To, to yeah. Do <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, um, but you do definitely see the, the parallels, right? Like you were saying where you had your, your Bauer and now you have NPM yeah. and you had yeah. Grun and Gulp and now you have many choices. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and oh, yeah. I, I think having the, having the historical context, you know, it's interesting and it can be helpful, but if somebody was came to me and says, Hey, I want to learn how to build websites. I want to get into front end development. Yeah. I would not be like, okay, first you got to start with <laughs> Moo tools yeah. or, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, or, or yeah. GWT, you know, oh, yeah. I, I don't think, I don't think I would do that. Uh, yeah. But I, I, I think at a academic level or, just mm -hmm. in terms of seeing how things came the way they are. Sure. For, for sure. It's interesting. Yeah. And I, I, I think another thing, I don't remember who asked or why, why I had to sort of think of this lately. Um, but it was knowing the differentiators between technologies is also extremely helpful. Right. So like, uh, what's the difference between ES build and SWC, right? Again, we're, we're, we're leaning heavy front end, but you know, just like, these, uh, sorry for context, of course, it's not everyone is a front-end developer, but these are two different uh, build tools, right, for, for JavaScript, right? Essentially, you could think of them as transpilers, but they, I think, so, you know, uh, I think they also bundle, like, uh, generally, I'm not exactly sure if, if ESBuild will, will bundle as well, um, but it's like, one is written in Go, the other one's written in Rust, right? And sort of, there's, um, there's in addition, there's V, which is like, Vite does bundle and Vite does a lot of things like it, like there's a lot of innovation in Vite that has to have to do with like making local development as fast as possible and also getting like you're sort of making sure as many things as possible are strippable right or or, or tree shakeable sorry is, is is the better is the better term um but yeah knowing knowing the um the differences between projects is often enough to sort of make it less confusing for me um as far as like oh which one of these things should I use you know Outside of just going with what people recommend, because generally there is some people with wisdom sometimes lead the crowd, sometimes, right? So, so sometimes it's okay to be, you know, a crowd member as long as you're listening to the to, to someone worth listening to, um, and 
and so yeah, I, I think that's another thing that is like I, the mark of a good project, or, or it, it's not exclusive, right? It's not the conditions not necessarily sufficient, but it's like a good projects have the why use this versus X, right? Section in the readme, right? They're like, hey, we know you could use Y, but here's why you should use us instead, or we know you could use X, but here's what we do better than X that might you might care about, right? That's um. A, a really strong indicator of a project that's good because that means the person who's writing the project has like, they've done this, the survey, right? And like, this is kind of like um, how good research happens, right? It's like most of research is reading what's happening, right? To knowing knowing the boundary you're about to push, right? Or try and sort of like push one, make one step forward in. Um, so that's something that I think the, the rigor isn't in necessarily software development everywhere, right? Which is good and bad. But someone who's sort of done that sort of rigor, or and like and, and has, and or sorry, I should say has been rigorous about knowing the boundary, and then they can explain that to you. They can be like, "Oh, here's where the boundary was. These people were doing this. These people were doing this. These people were doing this. But I want to do this." So you just learned now whether it's right for you and sort of the other points in the space, which is awesome. Yeah, going to your point, I feel like that's that's also important. It's probably not a good idea to try and get everyone to go through historical artifacts, but if just a, a quick explainer and sort of uh, note on the differentiation could help for sure. Yeah. I feel like we've skewed too much front end. Like no, no, more, <laughs> no more front end discussion. <laughs> it, it, it's yeah. just like, I, I think there's so many more um, choices mm. where the, mm. the mental thought that has to go into, okay, what do I use next? I feel is mm. bigger on mm. front end. I guess it depends on the type yeah. of project you're working on, but if you're going to work on anything front end, if you haven't done it before or you don't have a lot of experience, there's so many build tools, so many frameworks, yeah. so many libraries that, yeah. yeah. But, but iterate, we don't we, like, yeah, in every direction, like the, 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 it's good and bad, but front end just goes in every direction at the same time. Like there's so many people who are so enthusiastic and so, committed and, it, and it's so approachable that like everyone just goes in every direction at the same time and like a bunch of people make progress and then unfortunately you have to try and pick which uh which branch makes sense we've been kind of talking about some of your experiences with a few things and i wonder if you yeah. could explain the the context that you're thinking of in terms of the types of projects you typically work on like what are they what's the scale of them that sort of thing. Mm. So I guess I've, I've gone through a lot of phases, right? In sort of like what I use in my, my tooling and what I thought was cool. I wrote enterprise Java, like everybody else, like, like it really doesn't talk about it, but like, it's been like almost at some point it was like, you're either a rail shop or a Java shop for so many people. And I wrote enterprise Java for a, a, a long time. And I was lucky enough to have friends who are really into other kinds of computing and other kinds of programming a lot of my projects were wrapped around were were ideas that I was expressing via some new technology, let's say. Right. So I, I wrote a lot of Haskell for, for, for a while. Right. But what did I end up building with that was actually a, a job board that honestly didn't go very far because I was spending much more time sort of doing Haskell things. Right. And so I learned a lot about sort of what I think is like the pinnacle of sort of like, type development in, in the non-research world, right? Like right on the edge of research and actual usability 
but a lot of my ideas, sort of getting back to the the ideas question, are just things I want to build for myself, um, or things I think could be commercially viable or like do like be be well used uh, and and sort of and profitable things things that I think should be built or like if if I see some some projects is like oh I wish they were doing this in this way right like I, I often consider like oh I want I think I could build something that would be separate and maybe do like inspired from other projects I should say right uh, and sort of making me understand a sort of a different a different ecosystem but a lot of times I have to say like the stuff I build is mostly the scratch and itch I have um, and or something I think would be profitable or utilizing technology that I've seen that I don't think anyone's done in the same way, right? So like learning Kubernetes, for example, or like investing the time to learn Kubernetes opened up an entire world of sort of like infrastructure ideas, right? Because like the leverage you get is so high, right? So you're just like, oh, I could run an AWS, right? Like now that I, now that I know this, because it's like, it's actually not bad. It's kind of usable. Like, uh, couldn't I do that? Right? It, that kind of thing, right? Or um, I feel like a lot of the times I'll learn a technology and it'll it'll make me feel like certain things are possible that they that weren't before. Uh, like Rust is another one of those, right? Like, cause like, Rust will go from like embedded all the way to WASM, which is like a crazy vertical stack, right? It's that's a lot. That's a wide range of computing that you can you can touch, right? And and there's it's it's hard to learn, right? The 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 uh, the, the ramp to learning it is quite steep, but it opens up a lot of things you can write, right? It it opens up a lot of areas you can go into, right? Like if you ever had an idea for like a desktop app. Right, you could actually write it in Rust. There's like there's there's ways. There's like Iced and there's like um, Tauri is one of my personal favorites, which uses web technology. But it's either I'm inspired by some technology and I'm just like, oh, what can I use this on? And like, what would this really be good at doing? Or it's you know it, it's one of those other things. Like either I think it's going to be oh this would be cool to build and it would be profitable, uh, or like I'm scratching my own itch. Yeah, I think I think those are basically the, the three sources kind of. It's interesting about Rust where it seems so trendy, I guess, in terms of mm. lots of people want to do something with Rust, but then yeah. in a lot of cases, they also maybe are not sure, does it make sense to write in Rust? Mm. Um, mm. I, I think the the embedded stuff, of course, that makes a lot mm. of sense. And uh, yeah. you, you've seen a sort of surge in command line apps stuff like mm. uh rip grep and ag stuff like yeah. that and yeah. places like that it's i think the benefits are pretty clear in terms of you've got the performance and you have the strong typing and, and whatnot and i think where there, there's sort of the in-between section that is not kind of unclear to me at least where would i build a web application in rust i'm not sure right um, that's sort of yeah. Thing. Yeah, I would. I characterize it as kind of like it's a tool in a toolkit. So it really depends on the problem, and I think we have so many tools that there's no, there's almost never a real reason to pick one in particular, right? Like there's because uh, it, it seems like just most of a lot of the work, like 
unless you're you're really doing something interesting, right? Like uh, something that like, oh, I need to, I need to like, I'm gonna run, you know, billions and billions of processes. Like, yeah, maybe you want Erlang at that point, right? Like maybe maybe you should. That should be, you know, your your thing. Um, but computers are so fast these days, and most languages have have sort of borrowed, not borrowed, but like adopted features from others that there's it's really hard to find a, a specific use case for one particular tool. Uh, so I often just categorize it by what I want out of the project, right? Or, or like either my goals or project goals, right? Depending on, and or like business goals, if you're you know doing this for a business, right? Um, so like uh, I, I basically, if I want to go fast and I want to like, you know, reduce time to market, I use TypeScript, right? Uh, oh, and also I'm a, I'm a, like a type zealot i'd say so like i don't believe in not having types right like it's just like there's i think it's crazy that you would like have a function but not know what the inputs could be and they could actually be anything right and you're just like and then you have to sort of just keep that in your head i think that's silly now that we have good we we have uh, ways to avoid the uh ceremony right you've got like hindley miller type systems like you have a way to avoid the you can you know predict what types of things will be and you can you don't have to write everything everywhere so like it's not that but anyway so if i want to go fast the, the point is that going back to that early like the js ecosystem goes everywhere at the same time typescript is excellent because the ecosystem goes everywhere at the same time and so you've got really good ecosystem support for just about everything you do um you can write TypeScript that's very loose on the types and go even faster, but in general, it's not very hard. There's not too much ceremony in just like, you know, putting some stuff that shows you what you're using and like, you know, the objects you're working with. And then generally, if I want to like get it really right, I'll like reach for Haskell, right? Because it's just like the sort of contortions. And again, this takes time. This not fast, but right. The contortions you can do in the type system will make it really hard to write incorrect code or code that doesn't that isn't logical with itself. Of course, interfacing with the outside world, like if you do a web request, it's gonna fail sometimes, right? Like the network might be down, right? So you have to, you basically pull that, you sort of wrap that uncertainty in your system to whatever degree you're okay with. And then, but I know it'll be correct, right? But, and correctness is just not important. Most of like, oh, I should say, that's a bad quote. Uh, it's not that correctness is not important. It's like, if you need to get to market, you do not necessarily need every single piece of your code to be correct, right? If someone calls some some function with like negative one and it's not an important, it's not tied to money or it's like you know whatever, then maybe it's fine. They just see an error and then like you get an error in your backend, like oh I better fix that, right? Um, and then generally, if I want to be correct and fast, I choose Rust these days, right? Um, these days. And going back to your point. A lot of times that means that I'm going to write in TypeScript for a lot of projects. So that's what I'll do for a lot of projects is because I'll just be like, ah, do I need like absolute correctness or like some really, you know, fancy sort of type stuff? No. So I don't pick Haskell, right? And it's like, do I need to be like mega fast? <laughs> no, probably not. Cause so like because so I don't necessarily don't necessarily need Rust. Um maybe it's interesting to me in terms of like a long, long term thing right like if, I, if i'm like oh but i want x like for example tight tight uh integration with wasm for example if i'm just like oh i could see myself like but that's more of like you know for a fun thing that i'm doing right like it's just like it's it's you don't need it you don't that's premature optimization. like you know that's a premature optimization thing but if i'm just like ah 
I really want the ability to like maybe consider refactoring some of this out into like a WebAssembly thing later. Then I'm like, okay, maybe maybe I'll I'll, I'll pick Rust or like if I if I like I do want you know really really fast, then I'll like then I'll go Rust. But most of the time, it's just like I want a good ecosystem, so I don't have to build stuff myself most of the time. Uh, and you know, TypeScript is good enough. So my stack ends up being a lot of the time just in TypeScript, right? Yeah, I think you've encapsulated the reason why there's so many packages on NPM and why there's so much mm. usage of JavaScript and TypeScript in general is that it 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 fits the it's good enough, right? And in yeah. terms of in terms of speed, like you said, most of the time you don't need the speed of Rust, um, and so yeah. TypeScript I think is a lot more approachable and. A lot of people have to use it because they do front-end work anyways. And so that kind of just becomes the, I don't know if I should say the default, but mm. I would say it's probably the most common, um, probably in terms of when someone's building a backend today, certainly there's yeah. other languages, but JavaScript and TypeScript is everywhere, right? Yeah. Uh, I... I, I, the, another thing is like, I mean, I'm, I've sort of ignored the like unreasonable effectiveness of like rails. Cause there's just a, there's a tons of just like rails warriors out there and that's great. They're like, they're fantastic. I'm not, a, I'm not personally a huge fan of rails, but that's uh that's to my own detriment. Right. In, in, in some, in some ways, like rails and Django sort of just like people who like, I'm going to learn this framework. It's going to be excellent. It most, they have a, they've carved out a great ecosystem for themselves. Um, or like, you know, even PHP, right? PHP and like Laravel or, or whatever. Uh, and so I'm ignoring those, like those pockets of productivity, right? There's those pockets of like intense productivity that people like have all their needs met in that same way. Uh, but as far as like general, general sort of ecosystem size and speed for me, um, I, like what you said, like applies to me. Like if I, if I'm just like, especially if I'm just like, Oh, I just want to build a backend. Like I want to build something that's like super small and just does like, you know, maybe a few, a couple, you know, endpoints or whatever. And just, I just want to throw it out there. Right. Uh, I, I will pick. Yeah. TypeScript. It just like it makes sense to me. I also think node is a better VM or platform to build on than any of the others as well. So like, like I, and by any of the others, I mean, Python, Perl, Ruby, right. Like sort of in the same class of, of, of tool. So I I am kind of convinced that um, Node is better than those as far as core abilities, right? Like threading, right? As versus to just multi-processing and like you know other 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 solutions and like stuff like that. So if you want a boring stack, if I don't want to use any tokens, right? Any innovation tokens, I reach for TypeScript. Yeah, I, I think it's good that you brought up Rails and and Django because. Uh, personally, I've done I've done work with Rails, and you're right in that Rails has so many things built in, and the ways to do them are so well established that mm. your ability to be productive and build something really fast is hard to compete with, at least in my experience with yeah. what's available in the Node ecosystem. Um. Mm. On the other hand, like I, I also see what you mean by the runtimes. Like with Node, you're you're built on top of V8, and yeah. there's so many resources being poured into it to 
making it fast and yep. making it run pretty much everywhere. I think you probably don't do too much work with managed services, but if you go to a managed service to run your code, like a platform as a service, mm. they're going to mm -hmm. support Node, right? Will they yeah. support yeah. your other preferred language? Maybe, maybe not, but you know yeah. that they will, they'll be able to run Node apps. So, um, yeah. but, but yeah, I, I don't know if it will ever happen or maybe I'm just not familiar with it, but I feel like there isn't a real rails of JavaScript in, yeah. in, in the it's same totally right. all inclusiveness. Yeah. There are, there are, it's, it's weird. It's actually weird that there like that there isn't, uh, but, but, but I kind of agree with you. There, there's projects that are, that are trying it recently. There's like Adonis. Um, there is, there are backends that also do like, will do basic templating like nest nest JS is, is, is really excellent. It's like one of the best sort of backend projects out there. I, I, I think, but like back in the day, there were projects like sales, which was like very much trying to do exactly what rails did, but it just didn't seem to take off and reach that critical mass, possibly because of the size of the ecosystem, right? Like how many alternatives to rails are there? Not many. Right. And, and, now, anyway, maybe let's say the rest of them sort of like died out over the years. But there's also like um, Happy, H-A-P-I, uh, which is like also, you know, similarly, it was like tr angling themselves to be that. But they just never, they never found the traction they needed, I think, um, or at least to, to be as wide, widely known as Rails is for, 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 the, for the Ruby ecosystem. Um, but also for people to kind of know the magic. Cause like, I feel like you're productive in rails only when you imbibe the magic, right? You, you, you know, all the magic contexts and you know, the incantations and they're comforting to you, right? Like you've, you've, you have, the, you have the sort of like a convention. You're like, if you're living and breathing the convention, everything's amazing, right? Like, like you can't beat that. You're just like, you're in the zone. Um, but you need people to get in that zone. And I don't think Node has, people are just too, they're too frazzled. They're going, like, there's too much options. They can't, it's hard to commit, right? Like, if, imagine if you'd committed to Backbone. Like, you got, you can't, it's it's over. Oh, it's not over. I mean, people, I don't know. I don't want to, you know, disparage the Backbone project. I don't use it, but, you know, maybe they're still doing stuff. Uh, and, you know, I'm sure people are still working on it. But you can't, you, it's hard to commit and sort of really imbibe that sort of convention or, or, or sort of like make yourself sort of breathe that product when there's like 10 products that are kind of similar and could be useful as well. Yeah, I think that's 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 kind of big. It's weird that there isn't a Rails uh, for, for Node.js, but, but people are working on it, obviously. Like I, I mentioned Adonis, there's, there's more. I'm leaving a bunch of them out, but that's part of the problem. On, on one hand, it's really cool that people are trying so many different things because hopefully maybe they can find something that like other people wouldn't have thought of, if they all stuck, stuck mm. to the same framework. But on the other hand, it's how much time have we spent jumping between all these different frameworks when what we could have gotten done if we had, we had a Django or we had a Rails. Yeah. 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 The, the sort of wasted time is, is, crazy to think about uh 
yeah, <laughs> it does. I do think about that from time to time. And, and, you know, and personally, I waste a lot of my own time. Like just just recently, uh, something I've working on uh, for a long time. I came back to it after just sort of like me being on the shelf for a while, and I was like, you know what? I should rewrite this in Rust. I I really should. And so I talked myself into it, and I'm like, you know, it's going to be so much easier to deploy. I'm just going to have one binary. I'm not going to have to deal with anything else. I'm just like, it'll be it'll be so much better. I'll I'll be a lot more confident in the code I write. And then sort of going through it and like finishing this uh, a chunk of it. And the, the kind of project it is is like I'll have a lot of sort of different services, right? That, that, that sort of do a similar thing, but a sort of different flavor of a, of, of a thing, if that makes sense. And I know that I can just go back to TypeScript on the second one, right? Like I'm, I'm doing one and I'm just like, and that's what I've decided to do. Cause I'm just like, yeah, no, this doesn't make any sense. I'm spending way too much time um, when the other thing is like, is good enough. And like, I think maybe just if you feel that, if you can like, I don't know, if you stay, stay aware of just like, oh, how much friction am I encountering? And maybe I should switch. Like if you know Rails and you know TypeScript, you should probably use Rails if you're bought into the magic of Rails, right? And, and of course, Rails is also another thing that has always has great support from platforms as a service companies. Rails is always going to be, you know, have great support, right? Because it's just one of those places where it's so nice and cozy that, you know, people who use it are just like the people who don't want to think about the server underneath. I think that combination is really powerful. Like you were talking earlier about working with Kubernetes and learning how all mm. that works and mm. how to run a database and all that. And if you think mm. about the Heroku experience, right, you create mm. your, your Rails app, you tell Heroku, uh, I want a database, and then yeah. you push it. You don't have to worry about pods or Docker yep. or any of that. They take care of all of it for you. So I, I think that certainly there's a value to going deeper and, and learning about yeah. how to host things yourself and things like that. But I can yeah. totally understand if you have the money, uh, especially if it's for a business, yeah. why you would say, yeah. I don't want to do this type of ops work. I don't want to learn how to set up a yeah. cluster. I just want to push it to yeah. Roku, be done with. Yeah. Yeah. You don't, no one gives you an award <laughs> for learning how to like wrangle LVM, right? No, no one, no one gives you that. They're just like, you know, you either make it to market or you don't. Uh, and it's like, uh, like I, I mean, I, I'd love to hear about what you sort of optimize for, but I feel like it's all it's all about what you want to optimize for. Like, are you optimizing for time to market? Are you optimizing for a code base that people won't be able to mess up later? Right? Like a lot of just you know seed stage startups or like just early startups or big companies. Like it, just, it doesn't matter. We'll rewrite anyway, right? That like the eBay example was a great was a great sort of indication of that. Like you, it will get rewritten. So maybe it doesn't make sense. Maybe it's silly to, to optimize for strong code base at the beginning. Um, I think it uh, at the beginning, especially if you don't have an established audience, like you're not getting any money, then mm. pick something that the team knows and that you know, mm. um, or at yeah. least the majority does, because that, I think, makes the biggest difference in speed because mm. let's, let's say you, you were giving a example of I would use Haskell if I need to be correct and I would use yeah. Rust if I need to be fast. But if you are picking something everybody knows 
and you don't have some very specific requirement. Like there's some, some things that I agree, like you definitely want to use something yeah. like Rust. For the most part, if yeah. you're using something you already know, it's going to be built faster. It's going to be yeah. easier to read and maintain. And it'll probably be more correct just yeah. because you're, you're familiar uh, with that whole ecosystem. So I, I agreed right up until the last point. Because <laughs> I feel like correctness is like one of those, if you use a tool that lets you be too sloppy, you can't stop people from being sloppy, right? Uh, like, I think, I, I, and this is actually something I was thinking of earlier today, is like, I think writing good code is either people being disciplined or better systems. And of course, it doesn't matter in every case, right? And so like, so in cases where like, it, it's just not that important and, and it's better to just let it error and then someone just goes and like fixes it, right? But if you do that too long, you get, you can get spaghetti, right? You can get either spaghetti or you can get a code base that's suffering from a lot of technical debt. Uh, and it, it won't be a problem early on, but when it is, it's a big problem. Right and can drain a lot of a lot of time, but ninety nine percent of the time, I agree. You don't need anything other than like TypeScript or Rails or like Django or you, you could you could use Perl if you want. PHP obviously, like you know, right? Like all you you could get very far very fast with those, and often it's like not even necessary to go anywhere else. But the only little thing I'd say is just like I find that it's it's so hard to be correct if you're not getting any help from your compiler. Right, like for me, at the very least, right. Like if you're not getting any help from the language, it's so hard to like write stuff that's correct and doesn't ship with bugs in it. Right. There was um, there's a whole period of time where everyone was getting really excited about writing tests that were like, oh, make sure to like write a test with negative one, <laughs> right? Like just like you know, like the next level test stuff was just like, oh, but what if you like, you know, you got it. I mean, and this is true, right? You have to think like, how could your system possibly be broken, right? Like like. Thinking of how to break a system is hard. It's different from thinking of how to build a system, right? It's a different skill set. But like some of those things, you should really just be protected from. I think a big uh, moment in my career was like seeing option. I'd been lucky enough to have friends that were like exploring with stuff like um, like Haskell super early on and like Common Lisp and sort of like and reading Hacker News. Shout out to AJ because like that's his name. But like there's a there's a person that was like just kind of like sort of like exploring the frontier and then i would like hear a little bit and be like "Ooh, that's interesting and like kind of like kind of take a look but option coming in like i think java 8 was like wait a second options should be everywhere right because it's like npes null pointer exceptions should almost like they shouldn't really be a thing right like and then you're like oh wait option should be here but that means it has to be there and it kind of like it just infects everything and normally stuff that infects everything is bad, right? You're just like, oh, no, this is bad. I better take it out. But then you're like, wait a second, but option is right. Because I don't know if that thing is not a null, actually, right? Like the, the language doesn't give me that. So then, you know, you kind of stumble upon non-nullable types, right, as a language feature. And so it's, it's really hard to quantify, but I think things like that can make a, 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 a worthwhile difference in base choice of language as far as correctness goes and and preventing but i also know that like people are just blazing by in rails like just like absolutely without a care in the world and they're doing great and they like they have the all the integrations and it's all it's working out great for them but i personally just like 
I'm just like, I have to, I feel the compulsion. I'm just like, I feel the compulsion and I'm just like, I need to at least do TypeScript. And then I have a little bit more protection from myself. Uh, and then I can, and then I can go on. And it's also, it's like, it's also an excuse for me to like write less tests as well. Like a little bit, like, you know, I'm just like, you know, I, 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 I there's, there's some, there's some assurance that I don't have to like go back and actually write that negative one test, like at the, the first time, right? It, in practice, like t- technically you, you, sh- you should, cause like, you know, t- at runtime, it's a, it's a completely different world, right? Like TypeScript is like a compile time thing, thing. but if you if you write your types well enough, you you you're you're protected from some amount of that, and I find that that helps me personally. So so that's the that's the one place I'm just like, ah, I do like that correctness stuff. <laughs> I do like yeah that. yeah, I I think like I I do agree in a general sense mm. with languages that have static type checking, where mm. you know at compile time whether mm. something can even run, that can mm. make a big difference maybe correctness wasn't the right word, but I think when you work in an ecosystem, whether that's Rails or Django or something else, you kind of know all of the the gotchas, I guess. Like yeah. if you're if you're let's say you're building a product with Haskell and you've never used mm. Haskell before. I feel like, mm. yes, you have a lot of strong guarantees from the type system, but there are going to yeah. be things about the language or the ecosystem that you, you'll you just miss just because you haven't been yeah. in it. And yeah. I think that's what I meant by correctness and that you're going to make mistakes, either logical mistakes or yeah. mistakes in structure, right? Because uh, yeah. if you if you think about a Rails app, one of the things that I think is really powerful is that you can go to a company day one that uses Rails, and if they haven't done anything too crazy, you mm. have a general sense of where things are to some extent. Yeah. And yeah. when you're building something from scratch in a language and an ecosystem you don't understand, um, mm. there's just so many uh, like scrapes and cuts you have to get mm-hmm. before... Mm-hmm. You're proficient, right? Um, so, I, so I think that's that's kind of more what I was I was thinking of. Yeah. Oh yeah, I, I'd fully agree with that. Yeah, I'd fully agree with that. You don't know what you what you don't know, right? When you uh, when you start, um, especially with a new ecosystem, right? Because you just everything's hard. You have to go figure out how to do everything. You have to go try and decide between two libraries that do similar things, despite you know, like knowing how it's done in another language, but you got to like figure out how it's done in this language. Etc. But it's like, well, you know, at least decisions are easier elsewhere sometimes, right? Like, like in the database level, or like maybe in the infrastructure level, or. But yeah, I I totally get that. It's just most of the time you just want to go with that uh that faster that faster thing, <laughs> you know. Feels funny to say, of course, because I never do this. <laughs> like, I never, <laughs> like all my all my projects go on on essentially crazy stacks, but but I I try and I try and be mindful about. Is how much of my toil right now is even a good idea, right? Like, uh, d- depending on my goals, again, like going back to like that, it depends on what you're optimizing for, right? If you're optimizing for like learning or like getting a really good fundamental understanding of something, then yeah, sure. If you're optimizing for like getting the market, sure, that's a different answer. If you're if you're optimizing for like being able to hire developers to work alongside you, right? Like making it easy to hire teammates in the future, that's a different set of languages, maybe. 
so yeah, I don't know. I kind of gave the, the weasel answer, which is, you know, it depends. <laughs> right? Yeah. But, I, um, yeah. Especially if you're, you're learning or you're doing personal projects for yourself, then mm. yeah. If you, if you want to know how to use Haskell better then yeah, go for it. Use, use Haskell, um, mm. uh, or use Rust and so on. I think another thing I think about is the deployment. So if mm. you are running a SaaS or you're running something that you deploy internally, then I think something like Rails, Django is totally fine, especially if you use a platform as a service, then there's so many resources mm. for you. But if your goal is, to give you an example, like Mastodon, right? So we have the whole... Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Twitter, like tw- Twitter substitute thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mastodon is written in Rails and it has a number of dependencies, right? You have to have Sidekick, which runs the workers, Elasticsearch for search, um, Postgres yeah. for the database, and Nginx and so on. And for somebody who's running an instance for a bunch of people, totally makes sense, right? No big deal. Yeah. Where I think it's maybe a little trickier is, and I don't know if this is the intent of Mastodon or ActivityPub in general, but some people, they want to host their own instance, right? Um, Rather than signing up for mastodon.social and having a whole bunch of people on one instance, they want to be able to control their instance. They want to host it themselves. And I think for that, Rails... The, the resources that it requires are a little high for that kind yeah. of small usage. So yeah. in an example like that, if I wanted something that I wanted to be able to easily give to you and you could host it, then something like a Go or a Rust, I think, mm-hmm. would mm-hmm. make a lot of sense because you can run the binary, right? And you don't have to worry about all the things that go around running a Ruby application. So I think that's something to think about as well. And and we talked about command line apps as well, right? If you're going to build yeah. a command line app and you want it to run on Windows, well, the person on Windows is not going to have Python or Ruby. Um, yeah. So again, having yeah. it in Go or in Rust makes a lot of sense yeah. there. So so that's a that's another thing that I would think about is... Who who is it going to be given to, and who's going to deploy it as well? Yeah, that's um that's a great point uh, because it makes me think of the sort of explosion of sysadmins writing Go when it first came out. Like I I, I don't know if like, I, I I don't know if I imagined this or I think it was real, but like there were just so uh, up until then, like most sysadmins would be like. They like obviously like get to know their routers or their you know their switches and their you know their servers and like racking stacking doing all that stuff. L- languages and like frameworks can unlock a certain group of people or like unblock a certain group of people and like unlock their sort of productivity. So like Ansible was one of those first things that was like really sort of easy to understand and like oh you can imperatively set this machine up. But a side effect is you get a lot of sysadmins that know Python, right? So like now a lot of like the sort of black art stuff is accessible to you. Like or sorry. I say accessible to you isn't accessible to me as the non-sysadmin, right? Because I'm just like, oh, I can run this like little script this person wrote. 
uh, in Python and it like will do all this stuff, right? That I, I would have never been able to do before. And maybe I learned a little bit more about that, about that system, right? And so I, I, I saw something similar in Go where people were writing a bunch of tools that were just really easy to run, right? Really, really, really easy to run everywhere. Um, and that means easy to download, easy to like, you know, everything's easier. And a lot of hard things got a lot easier, right? Uh, and this is same with Rust. Like, I, I believe the library that most people use is like Clap. I built a few things with Clap and it's like, it gives you excellent, uh, I guess you'd call them affordances or like ability to make a high quality CLI program with very little effort, right? Uh, and so that means you end up writing really decent binaries, right? With like good help text and like reasonable, like, you know, options and stuff like that. And then it's really easy to deploy to Windows, right? And like other other platforms, uh, like you said, you don't have to try and bundle Python or, or whatever else, the sort of interpreter class of languages. So yeah, I think that I, I'd agree that like just languages and, and, and sort of frameworks can, can unlock easier creation of certain kinds of apps and a certain sort of groups of people to share their knowledge or like to, to, to make a, a tool that's more usable by everyone else. It could be like kind of like a multiplicative factor, right? On just like, I made this really, really intense Python script, but like now, but to use it, you'd have to like install Python on Windows and like manage your environments, whatever. Like, I don't know if you're using PyEnv, maybe you are, maybe you aren't. Do you get the wheel? Like what, what do you do with that? No, I'll just give you a executable and you have an executable. And then now you can use all the tools that like normally work with an executable or with something that like produces output and it's just faster for everybody and everybody like just you know gets more value. Cool. Well, is there anything else you wanted to to mention or or talk about? Uh I don't know. Oh yeah, I guess I guess I could just like say my stack, right? Um I, oh I, I really love SvelteKit. I've been kind of all in on SvelteKit for the front end for a while now. It feels like I've used um, I've used Nuxt, I've used like I've used a lot of frameworks, but I'm trying to think of, of, of frameworks that like do the um, like I think I think a local if not global maximum for front end development is power of the front end component driven sort of paradigm and server side rendering, right? Because there's like what are the big advantages of using something like Rails or like whatever else that, that just, just that's completely server-side is that the pages are fast. The pages are always fast. It's there, but they don't have interactivity, right? We've taken a weird path to get here and it looks really wasteful and maybe it is really wasteful, but at this point we now have kind of both kind of like glued and like hacked into one thing. And I think that class of tools is like, is, is, is a local maximum, if not, if not global. So, so yeah, so like there's like next, next, Salt kit. There's a, there's other solutions. There's Astro. Like there's there's, uh, which is Astro is really recent. Um, there's Ember, right? <laughs> Shout out to Ember, right? People, people still pushing that forward as well, which is great. But yeah, so I, I, I Salt kit also, and this is again in like direct conflict to what we've talked about this entire time, which is like use established things that get you there fast. But like Salt kit isn't at 1.0 yet, but it is excellent. Like I. I am more productive in it than I w ever was with Nux. Um, and again, Nux has changed a lot since I've, you know, sort of made the switch and like, you know, maybe I, maybe it deserves a rethink and like me re revisiting it, but I'm so productive with Felkit, I just like, I don't mind. And like half the time I'll just, I'll just use Felkit uh, and my database and then be done. Like no middle layer. So like no API layer. I just like, 
stuff it into the Socket app and then use Postgres on the back end and then I'm done. And I feel like that's been really productive. You know, again, this is outside of the the world where you use a Rails or whatever. Um, so yeah, so that's that's been my stack for a lot of the projects I've done recently. So yeah, if I if I had to, I guess say something about like front end, like give Socket a try. It's pretty good. Uh, and obviously, like databases, just use Postgres. Stop using other things. Don't don't do that. And like yeah, infrastructure stuff, I think Kubernetes is cool, but you probably don't need it. Uh, I like Pulumi. I feel like no one, like I've been recommending Pulumi for a long time over Terraform. So it's just like DSLs have limits and those limits are a bad idea to have when you, like the rest of your time is spent with no limits, right? With like just general computing, right? So, and Pulumi is just like, you can do your general computing and infrastructure stuff too. And it's, I feel like it's, it's always, you know, been better, but, but anyway, yeah, that's like, that's kind of my stack. So Pulumi is, um, it's yeah. a way to provision infrastructure, but is it, is there a language for it? Okay. Uh, it, it integrates with the language you use. So like, go. Oh, I see, good. I see. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and like, um, Terraform has caught up in that respect, right? Because you have that now. Um, but how it works is still slightly different, right? Because if I remember correctly, they, they still they generate a Terraform file and then execute that file kind of like it's, it's still a little bit different, which is like, it's and it's like AWS CDK as well, right? So so the world is sort of caught up to where, what Pulumi is doing, but you know I I think it was like I don't know Terraform twelve or something like that, where it was just like we've added better for loops. I'm like okay, at this point you're like this is that's the indication of like you now need general like you you you're now the DSL like DSLs can have for loops, but it's like if you're starting to like pluck you know, general computing languages, we have really good general computing languages right there. And, you know, that was kind of my indication to be like, okay, I, Pulumi is the way uh, for me. Um, again, th- this doesn't matter because like at work, you're going to, you're probably using Terraform. Like, you know, just every, just like there's, you know, everyone's using certain tools and you don't have a choice. Sometimes you have to use certain tools, but I personally have my, uh, have my pet, pet likes and stuff. How about for yeah. caching? Uh, KDB. So there is a, <laughs> I go into, I go into rabbit holes a lot. Uh, right. It just like, sort of like, I, I call myself a yak shaver cause I, 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 I shave a lot of yaks and, and, you know, it doesn't benefit anyone really, except for me, right. Most of the time, but there are a lot of Redis and Redis alikes out there. And the best feature set is right now KDB. There's like, there's a, there's one called Tendis. There's, um, which is like um, a little bit like a more distributed. There's like SSDB, which will do it off disk, which is, I think, because we have such fast disk, disks now, it's good enough for a bunch of applications, right? Especially if like, if your alternative was like, you know, a much farther away sort of, you know, call to the farther away service. There's Pelican out of Twitter. So they have a whole, they've got like a caching, it's like a f- framework kind of, right? Like they've, they've, they've sort of built a kernel of like really interesting caching. Um, originally like sort of to serve their memcache workloads and stuff, but it's kind of grown in like in lots of directions as well. KDB is, was the most compelling and still is to, to me for, from a resource usage, multi-threading, obviously like it is multi-threaded. So it is now it's, it's way faster. Right. Um, and also like it ha- offers flash storage using the, the SSD when you can. And, and that's, those are game changers, right? And, and and of course, all the you know usual and clusters, right? It clusters without you you know paying Redis Labs any money or whatever. 
um, which is which is fine. You know, people open source projects and and businesses have to, you know, make money. That is a thing. But yeah, KDB is is my uh, I, whenever I'm about to spin up Redis, I don't, and I spin up KDB. Uh, also, they were bought by Snap or bought, acquired, hell of an acquire, I think. <laughs> if 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 you because I think sometimes that has like a negative pejorative context to it. Like you didn't like, oh, you didn't make a billion dollars, you just got acquired or whatever. But hell of an acquire. Um, and and so all of it's like free now. Like all of the like all the, the premium features are becoming free. And I'm like, this is this is like I won the lottery, right? Because um, you know, you get all the 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 awesome stuff out of KDB for for free. Um, so yeah, caching KDB. I do KDB. KDB. And like yeah, I haven't heard yeah. of that one. Oh yeah, it's um. Yeah, it's like kdb.dev. Oh, and, kdb. Um, it's okay. awesome. Interesting. Yeah, and they did YC. Went through YC. It's awesome. Oh, so it's uh, it uses the the Redis wire protocol. Yep. Like Redis is like is the leader, unless you're using Memcache for some other reason, and then like obviously like you have to use Memcache or whatever. But um, but yeah, Redis is like the sort of app external cache du jour for basically everybody. So. And when I want to run Redis, I run KDB instead. Um, yeah. yeah. And the first search, do you just use the built-in search in Postgres, or do you turn to something else? Oh, <laughs> you passed the dangerous question. So I recently did some uh, some writing. So I I, I so recently um, like this year I've branched out and done a little bit more experiments on writing for uh for companies that like you know you know like have an interesting developer product or sometimes where like you know my sort of like interest and stuff just align right so like uh, i've worked with um ocv open core ventures um which is um sid if you know sid from gitlab that's his um his uh his fund uh and then also Superbase, which does um you know awesome stuff on postgres and you know it's fully open source that that company is amazing as well and search has been a thing so postgres has full text search SQLite has full text search. They both have it built in. They're very good. And I think great approximations for like V1s at the very least, maybe even farther. Because a lot of the time, if someone's in your product and they're searching, something's wrong usually, right? Like, like unless you have vast gobs of data, like this means your UX is not good enough for something, right? Um, but um, that said, I almost always start with Postgres full text search. And then I have the um, th there are there's a huge crop of new search engines, right? So if we consider open search to be new, as in like the fork of Amazon from from Elasticsearch, there's that. There's a project called Miley Search. There's a project called TypeSense. Um, there's Sonic. Uh, there's like um, Tantivy, uh, which which is like the can be underneath. There's like QuickWit, which is like sh shifted to logging a little bit. Like that's their like path to sort of um, profitability, I, I think. I think they, they sort of shifted a little bit. There's a bunch more that I'm, I'm missing. And so that's what I wrote about and had a lot of fun writing about for Superbase very recently. And this was um, this was something I just had written down, right? Like, so I was just like, I need to do a blog post. And I, I, I write on my blog a lot. So I'm just like, all right, I write up yak shapes to my blog a lot. And, I'm, and I was just like, I need to try and just use some of these, right? Because there's so many and they all look pretty good. And they have to have learned, like the golden standard is like uh, Solar, right? Lucene, right? Like it's like it's like Solar uh, and Lucene and like, you know, Elasticsearch and some of that or whatever. And, and, but a lot of times you just don't need, like it's, it's, 
you don't necessarily need every single feature we've seen. And so there are so many new projects that are look decent. Uh, and so I got a chance to, to, to sort of, I was paid to do some of that experimentation, which is awesome because I would have done it anyway, but it's nice that you paid to do it on search stuff. And I actually have a project. I like, I liked that so much that I made a project to try and get a more representative data set. So I started a site called podcastsaver.com. I use the podcast index, right? Which has a lot of sort of like podcast information. And, you know, if someone doesn't know about podcasts, there's like an RSS feed, right? Which is kind of like a, you can think of an XML uh, format where people like podcasts are just the publish of an RSS feed. And the RSS feed has links to where to download the actual files, right? So it's really open, right? Um, and so I used um, yeah, that the structure of that to index in multiple search engines at once, right, running alongside each other, the information from the podcast index. This is was fun for me because it was like an extension of that other project. It was a really good way to test them against each other very fast, right? Like or, or like in real time. So like right now, um, if you go to podcastsaver.com and you search a podcast, it will go to one of the search engines randomly. So right now there is Postgres, FTS, plus Trigram. So, so there's, um, there's also a thing called um, tri Trigram searches, another really good like um, sort of basic search feature. And there's Miley search. So both of those are implemented right now. And there's actually a little nerds link, right? Which will show you how many, how many podcasts there are, right? So, so how many documents, essentially, you can kind of assume there are. Um, and it'll show you how fast each search engine did, right? At sort of returning an answer. Now, it's a little bit of a problem because I don't, you need to do some manual work to figure out whether the answer was good, right? If you're really fast, but give a garbage answer, that's not good. But in general, like, so you can, you, you can actually use the nerd staff to control. You can like switch to only Postgres, uh, and I do that with like cookies and you can um, you can force it to go to Postgres and you can see the quality of the answers for yourself. But they're generally, it's pretty good from both. Like it's not, it's not terrible from, from, from both. So I'm, I'm kind of like glossing over that part right now, but you can see the performance and it's actually, it's like my research does a great job, right? Um, and, you know, there's obviously some complexity in running another service and there are some other caveats and stuff like that, but it's, it's pretty good. And over time, I want to add more. So I want to add, you know, at the very least type sense, like people have reached out. So like I, I made a, a comment on this on Hacker News and like, there's a long road ahead for that. And like, I honestly shouldn't be working on that because I have other things that I'm like, you know, I I'm, I'm really should be full time on. Um, but like, that's a thing I'm trying to, I'm trying to do uh, sort of grow in the future a little bit more. Cause it's just like, it's so fascinating to, to like, everything's so cheap. Like compute is cheap. You know, like there's awesome projects out there with like really advanced functionality that we can just run like for free or not, not for free, but like you don't have to do the work to like build a search engine. There's like five out there. So you all, you, the only thing that's missing is like knowing which one's the best fit for you. And like, you can just find that out. Are yeah. there any, I guess, early conclusions in terms of you like Miley search because of X or... Yeah, this, the Superbase blog post uh, I, was, was a little bit better in terms of uh, takeaways. I can say that from like, Miley search is definitely faster. Like, uh, Miley search was harder for me to load and like to get right. It took a, a little bit longer because you know you have to do the network call. And to be fair, if you choose Postgres, it's in the database. So like, your copying is a lot easier. Like manipulating stuff is a lot easier. Um, but right now, when I look at the stats, like Miley search goes way faster. 
it's like almost always under 100 milliseconds, right? And that's including, you know, um, that network, you know, round trip. Um, but, you know, Postgres is like, I don't know. I just, I just, I think it's, I, I, I'm just, so, I'm so biased. Like, it is not a good idea to ever bet against Postgres, right? Like, obviously, my research is, like, it doesn't make sense for Postgres to be better than purpose-built tools um, because they are fully focused, right? Like, they should be, they should be optimal because they, they, they don't have any other sort of conflicting constraints to think about. But Postgres is very good. It's just like, it's, it's so excellent and it, it keeps moving. Like it keeps getting better. It gets better and better every year, every, like every quarter, like it's hard to not bet on it. So I often, so, so, so yeah. So I just, I, if you, I, I would say based on pure performance of podcastsaver.com right now, the data lends itself to saying, pick my research. Unfortunately, that data set is incomplete. I don't have type sense up. I don't have all these other like search engines up, so so it's 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 limited. There was also like in the Superbase post, you'll see there there was support for like um, misspellings and stuff was different among search engines. So there's also that access as well. But if you happen to be running on Postgres, I really do suggest just just give Postgres FTS a try, even if it was just trigram search. Like even if you just do trigram search and do like a sort of like fuzzy search bar, because that's probably like what a V1 would look like anyway. Try that. And then go off and like, you know, and then like, if you need like crazy faceting or like, you know, you know, really advanced features, then jump off. Uh, but I, I don't know. That's not interesting because I feel like it already kind of confirms what I think. So, you know, but I think other people, other people need to need to do this. I need other people to please replicate uh, and uh, come up with better, better ideas than I have. But I think that's a good start in, in terms of when you're comparing different solutions, whether it's databases or... I don't know what you call these, but the what do you call an Elasticsearch? Search yeah, search engine. Yeah, yeah, search, search engine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you go to the open source projects or the company's websites, and they'll have their charts and go, "We're X times faster than Y." But I, I think actually having a running instance where they're going against the same data, I think that's that's helpful, really for for anyone trying to compare something to for someone to having gone through the time. And I think that could apply to a lot of other things too, not just search engines where you could, you could have, Hey, I have my system and it's got, uh, I don't know, five different databases or something like that. I, I'm not sure the logistics <laughs> of how you would do it, but I, I think, um, like with Redis, uh -huh. with Redis right? Right, right. Like just like right. all the Redis alikes, like just yeah. get them all, run, run them all at the same time. And like, you know, someone needs to do that. Could be you. I do too much. Like the Redis thing is obvious, right? Redis is easier. Like comparing these Redises, and there's some great blog posts out there also that like kind of do it. But like a running service is like a really good way of like showing like, oh, this is like, like we hit this cache, you know, X times a second with like, and it's like this like naturally random sort of traffic. This is how it performed. This is how they performed against each other. These were like the, the resources allotted or whatever. But yeah, that stuff's, that stuff's really cool. I feel like people haven't done it or aren't doing it enough. Yeah, I guess the, the thing about putting together one of these tests as well, especially when you make it live, is then mm. you, you have to spend the time and spend the money to maintain it, right? And mm. I think uh, if somebody's not paying you to do it, then it's got to be uh, 
yeah, you got to want it that bad to, <laughs> to yeah, put it together. That's yeah. True. Hey, but you know what? We can go full circle or yeah, full circle here. Just use Kubernetes, man. <laughs> it's, it's easy if you just use Kubernetes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> for first, you gotta learn. Uh, <laughs> where, where were we? First, start with Postgres, then Kubernetes. Yeah, yeah. yeah and if then, you want to use Kubernetes yeah. first. You start with Postgres. Yeah, it's like what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so learn learn these ten other things first, and then you can start to build your project. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's silly, but it's just like, I know people out there have the knowledge. I just feel like it's, it's like, you know, they just need to do some of this stuff, right? Like, it's just like, they just like need to like have the idea or just like, go, just go try it out. Mm -hmm. uh, and hopefully we, we get more of that, like in the future, like people just like, cause, cause at some point, like you, you, there's going to be so much choice that you're like, how are you going to decide? How does anyone decide these days? Right? Like, you know, more people have to dedicate their time to, to like trying out different things, but also sharing it. Cause I think just. Inside companies, you do this, you do the bake-offs, right? Everyone does the bake-offs to try and figure out, you know, within a week or whatever, whether, whether they should use, let's say like BuddyBase or AppSmith, right? It just like, it's just like the rest of the team has no idea what those are, right? But someone does the bake-off. Maybe start sharing bake-offs. There it is. There's another app idea. I, I think of a lot of ideas and this is a, there's another one, right? Just make a site where people can share their bake-off. Like just share their bake-off results with certain products and then that knowledge just being available to people is like, is massively, is massively valuable. And it, 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 it kind of helps. It helps the products that are mentioned because they can figure out what to change. Right. It kind of makes the market more efficient, right. In that vague uh, capitalistic sense where it's like, Oh, like then, you know, if everyone has a chance to improve then we get a better product at the end of the day. But, um, but yeah, I don't know. Hopefully more people, <laughs> More people yak shave. Please, more people waste your time. Uh, that way, uh, use your time to uh, to yak shave. It's 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 fun. Well, I think it's you. It's yak shaving, but you have something at the end of it, right? Sometimes you can yak shave, yeah. and at the end, it's kind of like, well, I I played with it, and oh well. <laughs> Versus yeah. you you having something yeah. to show for it, right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I won't talk about all the other projects that, uh, <laughs> that I'm absolutely <laughs> nowhere, of course. No, but, uh, but yeah, I think it's, um, yeah. And yeah, I, I think even if you're, because you always learn something, right? Um, but at some point, it's like, to me, it sort of like starts to feel selfish if you learn something to, and, and I should I should rephrase this. I, like, I'm definitely a selfish person. Like, just, you know, like, I, I'm not, this is not altruism, right? It's just like, but at some point it feels like, man, someone should really, know this other stuff right like if you if you found something that's like interesting you like it's it's like someone should know because someone who's better at it will be like oh like no this part and this part like it's like everyone kind of wins which is which is awesome so i don't know maybe if more people had that feeling they'll like they'll like share some of their stuff and like maybe you do a thing and it doesn't help you but then someone else comes along and they're like oh because i read this i know how to do this and like and then if they give that back too, it's uh, it's pretty awesome. But anyway, that's all pie in the sky. Well, I think in, <laughs> in general, the fact that you are running a blog and you know you do your posts on Hacker News and and so on, the fact that you're you're sharing what you've learned, I think is is super valuable. And I think that goes for for anyone really, anybody who is learning a new technology or working on a problem. 
and you run into issues or things you get stuck on, for sure, yeah, you should you should share that. And there's uh, what the way I've heard it described is um, there's always someone on the internet just waiting to tell you why you're wrong. And, oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> yeah. and provided that they're right, that could be very helpful. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I actually, I love that. I, I personally like it because if you're, if you're a hacker in the, you know, in the, in the sort of like hacker news sense, that's excellent. That's like a free compiler, right? It's like a free checker, right? If you just, if you just sit next to someone who's amazing at X and you just start bouncing ideas of, like around X and like how to do whatever it is off of them. You get a compiler. They're just like, no, you can't do that because of X, Y, and Z. And you're like, oh, okay, great. I just saved myself like, you know, <laughs> months of like thinking I could do it. And like, now I know I can't do it. And the internet is great because it gives you access to like, to those people who are like, yeah, and knowing it first, but if you realize that like, oh, they've chosen to share some wisdom with me, like, that, like you know, or, or like trying to, right? Assuming you're a correct or like, even if they're not correct, um, it's, it's, it's pretty awesome. So, so I personally welcome that. Of course, it doesn't feel good to be wrong, right? I, I, I don't like that, but, um, I love it when someone like take, took the time to be like, no, your, your view on this is wrong because of this. Or like, you know, like 99% of the time, you don't need that. You should have just done this, right? Cause then I learn a lot of my posts will have updates at the top, right? So like when someone like, you know, when I posted the the thing about the throat mic to like Hacker News, people were like, this sounds terrible. <laughs> and I was like, I didn't think it was that bad. But uh, but I was like, you know, maybe I maybe I shouldn't use this uh, all the time. But it, it is, you know, it was it was like obvious that, oh, I should have I should have never made the post without including a sample of the audio at the top. Right. So like I like went back and like did an update for that. And, the, and then people like discussing about like, oh, you should have used a bone conducting mic instead. Like and like all this other stuff that I just like didn't think about. I'm like, ah, oh, awesome. And then like I update the post. I go on with like, my life. So anyway, more people, please do that. And don't post it on Medium. Please don't do that. Stop. Stop that. If you like if you if you write software, do not like. Please put it some put your writing about software somewhere else unless I don't know you have to or something. You've reached your article <laughs> limit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just like uh, no, no, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Oh, also, shout out to uh, the web archive. <laughs> like, like hosting, like the best way to get out almost any article, right? And just like mm. people, I, I, I don't think people in the general populace know this, but like ninety nine percent of the time, if you're trying to read a thing and they're like, "Hey, you've reached your article limit." you just go to the, you know, the web archive, like everyone it's, it's common knowledge for, for us. Uh, but, but it's not common knowledge for everybody else. And it just feels like they're making a lot of stuff available and, and legally. Right. Cause like, you know, there's like the, the precedent right now, I think is, is, is in favor of scraping, right. If you make a thing available to the internet, right. LinkedIn got ruled against um, a, a while ago, but like, if you make a thing available to the internet, uh, publicly available without signing in or whatever, it is assumed public. Right. So it's just like, yeah, whenever I read something, I'm just like, ah, article limit. I hop right on, I hop right on article day. But but I just feel like it's like, it's it's sad that developers put like put knowledge and mass into that particular. It's not a trap because I, I don't. It's not like I don't dislike medium. I don't have any necessarily like animosity towards medium. But it's just like we should be the most capable of 
putting up something like maintaining our own websites, right? If it's like the death of the personal website, why is it dying with developers? Like we should be the most capable. We have no hope of the regular world putting out websites if if it's hard for us, right? Um, I, I mean, I think for stuff like Medium, maybe sometimes it's the the technical aspect of not wanting to set up your own site, but I think a large mm. part of it is the social aspect. Like with Medium, mm. you have discoverability, you have the likes system, if they even call it that. Mm. Um, I think that's the same reason why people can be happy to post on Twitter, right? Um, yeah. But when it comes to posting on their own blog, it's like, well, I post and then nobody comes and sees it, right? Or <laughs> I don't get the, yeah. I don't get the, well, the thing is too, like they could be seeing it, but you don't get the feedback and you don't mm, get, you don't get the yeah. dopamine hit of like, oh, I got 40 likes on Medium or, or Twitter sure. or whatever. And I, I think that's sure. one of the challenges with personal sites where I totally agree with you, wish people would, yeah. would do it and do more. But I also understand like you are, you are a little bit on an island unless you can get people to come and, and interact with you. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Well, there's another idea, right? Like just, <laughs> you know, can you build a sort of self-hostable, but centralized by default medium clone but it's like that's like a personal site that you could easily you know host like almost like wordpress like let's say right um but with the with enough metrics with like with the engagement stuff built in even though it's not like powering a company essentially right because like the incentives behind building in the engagement like pumping up engagement makes sense if you're running a company because you like you know you're trying to get maus up so you can do your next round or like you know you know make more revenue wonder if i don't know uh, yeah, it's just like, like, that is a great point, because it's like, you don't get the positive reinforcement, if you don't have the likes and the things that a company would add, right? Like, as opposed to just like, oh, I set up Nginx, and like my site's up or whatever, like, not that anyone does that these days. But yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting. It's just like, could you make it really like just increasing the engagement of doing it your, yourself or like, you know, having that. Huh. Huh. I think sites have, have mm. tried. I mean, it's not quite the same thing, but mm. dev.2, if you've seen that, mm. like mm. Uh, they, they have, um, I can't remember what it's called. I think it's like a canonical link or something, but, but basically mm. you can post on their site and then you can put the canonical link to your own website. And mm. so then when somebody searches on Google, the, mm. the traffic goes to your site. It doesn't bring up uh, dev.2. Um, oh, and interesting. Then, and then people can, know you know, comment and like on dev.2. Um, so, yeah, I thought it was an interesting idea. I, I don't know how many people use it or take advantage of it, but that's, that's one approach anyways. Yeah, that's actually, that's cool. I don't know enough about that space. I guess it's, that sounds awesome. <laughs> that sounds like actually, you know, like kind of useful and like a good middle ground, right. In like encouraging the ecosystem, but also like, you know, capturing some of that, capturing some of that value, right. In, in terms of like just SEO juice, I guess, if you want to, what you want to call it, but that's awesome. I don't know. I, I've, I've always thought of like dev.2 and, and clearly I was, you know, at least wrong in part, 
of dev.2 is just like medium 2.0 for but more developer focused um but i will find great blog posts on there um you know more often than not and it's just like okay yeah that's that's awesome like it it, it works uh and this canonical linking sounds actually like very good for um for everybody involved so awesome sounds like they're, they're good yeah if people want to check out yeah. what you're up to what 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 you're working on where should they head oh god uh well like i have my blog at um vadosware.io so v a d o s w a r e.io um i have a bunch of projects i work on actively but the two biggest ones right now uh, i guess th three um uh, like I, we mentioned podcast saver which is cool uh I, if you'd like to download podcasts do that um i send out ideas i send out ideas every week that i think are like valuable valuable and like things you could turn up into like a startup or a SaaS and like kind of focus on like validating because like one thing I've learned the hard way is that validating ideas is more important than having them because uh, you can think something is good and it won't, won't attract anybody. Um, or, you know, if you don't put it in front of people, they don't, it's not going to take off. So I do that. I send that out at like unvalidatedideas.com. So that's, that's a, a, you know, that's the domain. I also started um, trying to highlight FOSS projects because in Yak Shaving, what you do is you come across a lot of awesome free and open source projects that are just like, oh, like this is a whole world and like this is like pretty polished and it's like pretty good and I just bookmark them. So I was just like, I have so many bookmarks, it doesn't make sense that I hold all of them. Um, and like I, someone else has, should see this. So I send out, and this is uh, new for me because I send out that newsletter every day. So it's a daily newsletter for like free and open source projects that do, you know, do whatever, like do lots of various things. And, and that is at awesome FOSS. So you can actually spell it multiple ways, but A-W-S-M-F-O-S-S.com. So like awesome without the vowels, um, but also just if you spell it normally, like a normal person, like awesome, the word F-O-S-S.com. Um, so that's, that's going. And then, <laughs> the the thing that's actually like taking up all my time is Nimbus. Um, Nimbus Web Services is what I'm calling it. Uh, it's not out yet. There's nothing to try there, but it is it is my attempt to host free and open source software, but give 10 to 30 percent back of revenue. So not profit, right? Because they they can be different things and like you know see the movie industry for like how that can go wrong of revenue to back to open source projects that uh, th that made the software that I'm hosting, right? And I, I think there's more interesting things to be done there, right? Like it can, I can be more aggressive with that, right? If it, if it works out, because it's just like, you know, it scales so well, you know, see Amazon, right? But yeah, so if you're if you're interested in that, check out nimbusws.com. Um, yeah, that's it. I've, <laughs> I've plugged everything. <laughs> everything is everything, everything plugged. Yeah, that that last one sounds pretty pretty ambitious. So, good good luck. <laughs> All right. Thanks All right. for taking the time. <laughs>